What's up, everybody? How's everybody doing? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science Happy Hour. Hope you guys are having an amazing week. Super excited to see all you guys here. Man, the room is packed. The waiting room is packed. Looks like we're going to have a good afternoon today. Uh, if you guys got a beer or a wine or a hard liquor, cheers, man. Happy to have you guys here. Um, hopefully, you guys got an opportunity to check out the episode I released today uh, with Tim Ennels. Tim Ennels runs the Analytics Explained YouTube channel. Had an excellent time talking to him. Kind of was on a trend of uh, product management and um, wanted to really understand that a little bit more. So that's why the last couple of episodes were really heavily focused on that. Um, if you got if you got hot tea, you can cheers up for a hot tea as well. So we got a lot of friends in the house. We got Tom. We got Greg Coquio. We got Angelo. Akshay's in the house, Kristen, Anas, Koshal, uh, Vin Vashista's in the building, Russell Willis. Man, so happy to see you guys here. We got Wiko coming in as well. So guys, for the first few minutes of Office Hours today, about the first uh, 15 to, to 20 minutes or so, we have a special, special um, treat today. We got uh, some of Akshay's students here who will be um, essentially practicing a presentation they have uh, that they're going to be giving at a much larger audience tomorrow. And we get an opportunity to see a real data science project in the works. And not only that, we get to help them prepare by asking a bunch of questions. Um, I'm sure they're going to be appreciative of that. Ben Taylor's in the house as well. Happy to see you guys here. All right, guys. So if you guys have questions in the meantime, though, please do uh, go ahead and enter right there into the chat that you have a question. I'll add you to the queue. Right now, I've got the students queued up for at least 15 minutes. Um, you know, we'll go over to a half hour if there aren't that many questions. Um, but I wanted to really give these guys an opportunity to practice what they're working on. Uh, so without any further ado, let's go ahead and take it away. Akshay, do you want to go ahead and introduce your students? Absolutely. So good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Akshay, as you know me. Um, I went to University of Maryland. Uh, that explains the swag that I'm wearing today. And we have this annual data challenge where students get to participate on uh, different data science questions and present their analysis towards the end of the week. Um, so fortunately, this year, I'm mentoring a group of students who is presenting their analysis to us today. Uh, the final day of the presentation is tomorrow, so we are hoping to give our best, but this would be a good dry run for us to present what we worked on this week and also get an opportunity for some questions. So I'd like to introduce my team, um, and they'll go one by one with the presentations. Um, I guess, Teddy, you're going to go first. Go ahead. Um, so, yeah, I'm Teddy. Uh, I did a lot of the data scraping and analysis for this project, so did... Gabriel, but he is driving, so I'm going to be presenting that part. And then for our next member, uh, Brendan. Yeah, I'm Brendan. Um, Brendan Goodyear, I helped with all the data um, scraping and whatnot, but uh, te honestly, Teddy and Gabriel did the most. Um, and I've just been helping with logistics, like writing the abstract, getting everything organized, making sure we meet um, like all the requirements we need to hit. And then last member is Minar. Hi everyone, I'm Manar. Um, I'm also part of the team. Um, uh, like Brendan said, Gabriel and um, Teddy, I've been taking over most of the data scraping on Python. I'm a little bit more comfortable with R, so I've been doing a little bit of R um, work with the data set, but a lot of it ended up being on Python. And I've also just been helping with logistics and writing up the abstract. Okay, so do I have permission to screen share in here? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. On the uh, bottom of the... Uh, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that it yeah. would... 
Go for it. All right. Is this working for everyone? Yep. Looks good. Yep. Okay. So this is a little bit, it's a work in progress. How do I minimize this? Oops. So our project is finding trends in COVID-19 data, um, study of the correlation between database indicators in the Schengen area countries. Um, so these are the data sources that we were using um, for our analysis. We were initially given um, from the data challenge, the COVID-19 global symptoms tracker. And this was provided to us by the uh, UMD Social Data Science Center. Um, they were... Um, we had some good data in here, but we really wanted to produce something that could be um, used for some predictive analysis. So we ended up joining some data from the COVID-19 World Survey Data API. So these are the two main data we ended up using for our um, analysis. So in this data set, this is from the Maryland COVID-19 World Survey Data API. There are they just updated it, but when we started, there were 21 indicators sent out, and these are all like, so each of these is returned as um, a smoothed, <clears throat> sorry, like a smoothed aggregate of the weekly values. That's what we were told. So for example, if, so for example, each one of these has a specific sample size, and each one of these indicators correlates to to the percentage of the population experiencing one of these. So for the COVID indicator, it returns um, the proportion of people in that country or the estimated proportion of people in the country based off the survey experiencing these types of symptoms. And there are 21 of these. And a lot of them didn't have complete data. So what we focus on most was the COVID indicator, the mask indicator, the contact indicator, and the anosmia indicator. And anosmia refers to respondents reporting loss of smell. So to collect this data, we Gabriel and I both coded different data collection methods. And for some reason, his worked a lot faster than mine. But mine was just, um, just building the links and calling the API. And it took a pretty long time because it's um, there's 21 API calls per row. And there were around 750,000 rows of data. So then we picked the Schengen countries because those are the countries in Europe that allow free travel between the borders. And they didn't shut them down during the pandemic. So we figured it'd be interesting to study the trends and see if there were any correlations between a spike in one country and its neighboring countries. Oh, yeah. And then this is just um, our abstract. We had to turn this in by Wednesday. And just to clean up, the, the data before comes from um, Facebook surveys that are prompt when people log into Facebook and it's all across the world. So just clear that up. And then basically, yeah, so this is our abstract. Um, basically, the goal of this was to identify and analyze the relationship between the COVID-19 indicators provided to us through this uh, World Survey uh, Data API. And just like we're trying to, like like Teddy said, do some predictive analysis, see if we can take the old and like the past indicators and use those to predict the future indicator. That was the end goal. So then like here we just talk a little bit about just what Teddy just said about like CSV contains 23 columns, all those indicators. Um, so yeah, right now we're still working. Like, uh, like Teddy said, it's a work in progress, but yeah. So it's just, I, do you have the graphs Teddy or? Yeah. Yeah. So I can show them what we have so far. Um, the predictive analysis we didn't focus on so much because we just felt that while it'd be something cool to show, it's not really proving anything. 
especially as vaccines come out. Vaccines have only been available for the last three months. There's not a lot of training data. So we might knock that from our presentation tomorrow also because the algorithm's a little bit funky. It's not working. But so I wrote the analysis notebook really quickly and it imports all of these things. And long story short, because I think we're more focused on analyzing the trends when you run this, um, oh, the whole thing reloaded, sorry. Theo, can you maybe zoom in a little bit on the chart so we can look at the actual values? Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna generate a chart from this. So one country that we thought was interesting to study was Sweden because unlike most other countries in the world, they didn't provide a response to the COVID pandemic. They didn't shut down, didn't have any mandates. So I'm gonna pick Sweden next. And then from the list of indicators, CLI refers to people, percentage of people um, experiencing COVID-like illness. Um, mask refers to the proportion of people wearing a mask in public. Contact, same thing, proportion of people who came into contact with someone with COVID. And anosmia, which is that. So when I click next, it generates, um, that's interesting, it just worked a minute ago. Uh, I could pick another country. I have some screenshots saved. So for example, let's do France and I'll zoom in. We have to reformat the data because that was a work in progress. So France doesn't have as extreme of an example, but you could see um, around the end of May, beginning of June, the percentage of people wearing a mask in public seemed to decrease a little bit around the same time, the summer months, the percentage of people experiencing contact with someone with COVID increased and dropped sharply around November. And again, big increase around the holidays. So that was one example of one country. And we're still working on the formulas to be able to cross compare countries on a, and color code everything and make it simple. But um, another good example, I believe, let's just say Italy, because we know Italy was hit pretty hard. So COVID and anosmia, these are pretty small um, proportions of people. But again, same similar trend. You can see decrease in mask wearing around the summer months and the rate of contact. But what's also interesting is as the mask rate stays around the same, contact rate dips and then increases around the holidays. So this says to me that around the holiday season, a lot of people who claim that they were wearing masks were probably giving false information to the survey because we could see a pretty clear correlation otherwise around here. And same with the summer months, you can see that contact greatly increased as weather got nicer. And for now, that's all we have. Um, we have more data analysis coming, but that wasn't clean enough for us to feel be able to present. Oh man, thank you guys. That was uh, pretty cool to see you guys put that into action. So I'm going to open up the floor right now to uh, questions about your presentation. So if anybody has a question about this presentation, go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, go for it. I see David Nickenbacher. Nickenbacher is uh, unmuted. Dave? Hey, so I saw that you had a couple features in there, trusted CDC, and I think the other was like trusted politicians. I was wondering how thorough is that feature? How trustworthy was it? Like, was it pretty scarce? Yeah, so we didn't focus on those columns so much because there's pretty scarce data in them. So if I screen share again, I can. if you want to pick a country from uh, the list on here, can you guys see this? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know why this is not working because it worked. It, it's running for me. I could share screen and try and... Okay. 
Because if I try um, Sweden again, and then let's just do um, Sweden, and then let's just try uh, CLI, just code like illness, and trust politicians. There we go. So you can see on this graph, in Sweden, trust in politicians spiked around January, and it seems to be a decreasing trend. Um, we haven't done enough in-depth analysis to really see if there's any other correlations, but that's why we created this Jupyter notebook to be able to find that. And where does that field come from, the trust politicians? Is that from CDC or? That is from all of this data in this presentation is from the Maryland COVID-19 World Data API. Okay. This I've been the doing that. That we were provided I've with. I've been doing my own independent COVID study uh, based on uh, how state politics affect COVID numbers. And so when you split the numbers up by how states voted overall in previous elections, you get neat separation too. So that's pretty interesting. So those two features really sparked my attention because they're similar to something I've been looking at. Yeah. We picked these countries that um, I'm probably printing butchering the pronunciation. So if we, in this data set, we don't have the other countries available, but if we were to pick a country that probably has a less, what we would consider to be a less secure government, I'm sure that the trust politicians line would be significantly different. Mm -hmm. Cool. Very cool. Thank you. Hey, Teddy, Tom here. So um, my comments aren't going to be very data science-y. Who are you presenting this to? Uh, There is a whole board of people um this whole event doesn't seem to be very well organized okay so we are getting information kind of like on a minute by minute basis of who we're presenting to sure where we have to submit our materials it's very loosely organized i i could be wrong and i'd really love to hear anyone disagree with me on this but you presented this to other data scientists and I mean, excuse me. What I mean is you sound like you were presenting to other data scientists. Yes. We... And I would encourage you not to do that. Okay. If the, if the event's not very well organized and you don't, if they haven't told you what your target audience should be, you'll actually get better experience by presenting to non-data scientists. And, and a couple of high points that I hope will help because you, you guys, I, I respect the hell out of you for wanting to be grilled. I didn't know what a Shenzhen country was until a few slides after you mentioned it. Please don't show me code. I'm a data scientist. I love code. I don't want to see it in a presentation. I'd love to hear if others agree or disagree with that. Show the outputs. And I know you're still coming up with this. So I don't mean that ultra harshly. Don't show me a page of text with the abstract, maybe some high points that really show how they can, the high points connect together, like a mind map or, or something like that. But it took me, I don't, I still don't think I know what was the purpose in doing this. It was, was there was there a reason you felt it, it was important to present this? I mean, obviously COVID's important, but what are y'all really trying to, what value add are you trying to give through this? Those are just some of my thoughts. And I can see Greg is about to shoot me if I don't shut up. So I'm going to do that because I like what he likes to say. No, no, no. I think, I think you're, you're, you're on to something for them. And I, and I fully agree. But Teddy, correct me if I'm wrong. You're saying to us, and this is, this is a business guy here. 
Yeah. You're telling me that you were concentrating on the prediction piece of it, but you're leveraging data science skills to be able to aggregate all these indicators on the run roof and extra insights at scale. Yeah. Right. So you're, you're able to analyze countries by pulling indicators through your tool and extra insights. Mm -hmm. So to build on what Tom says, I would go with this high level uh, structure, which is like a, some sort of a pitch of a tool you created that will get everybody excited, whether they're a technical person or a non-technical. And typically you want to start with a nagging issue and that there, and there is a void to tackle that nagging issue. Then you go, you created this solution and you tested it. Here are the high level results. By using my tool, this is what I saw for Sweden. This is what I saw for Italy by pulling these indicators, et cetera, et cetera. And then you can go a little bit technical after that. What was the logic that I used to come up with this solution? X, Y, Z, blah, 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 but still being some sort of in between technical and no technical to explain how you're able to access the data, clean up the data, and bring the indicators that mean a lot to you in terms of performing this analysis. When you do this for prediction, you should do the same thing too. So that's, and, that's what and, I wanted to say. And Teddy, real quick, I'm going to just cover this. Um, the infamous Ben Taylor above says, speak to why, avoid the how. Couldn't have said it more concisely. And Russell really gave the best explanation, I think. It, I, I, it's the Denzel Washington in the Philadelphia movie. He played a lawyer defending Tom Hanks. Explain it to me like I'm a fourth grader. And uh, but I like Russell's version even better as if explaining to your grandma rather than your peers. I think that's spot on. By the way, take your code. That's OK. But do a flow chart. If 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 it, there's some reason to show the importance of the code. But okay. every, everything Greg said, too, I hope this is helping. I know it, it boy, it's hard to take this stuff, but you guys actually have the foundation to turn it into something really powerful. Yeah, I think, like I said, we were still in the process of, I have a whole folder of other graphs and things that we're analyzing. So our original, we had a million different ideas originally. And I think that over the course of tonight, we're going to be going through all of this data and seeing not just trends, because of course we couldn't kind of say that, of course, over the summer, people were in contact with more people who had COVID. I mean, this data proves that, but that's kind of like an intrinsic thought. So a lot of what we have right now is, seems to be proving intrinsic thoughts, like spikes around holiday seasons, things like that. But what we want to do and what I wanted to do is see if, let's say a spike, this is where the predictive analysis comes in. And this would just be helpful for anything else. Like I said, in this um, Schengen region where the borders are open, does a spike in one country correlate to a spike in a neighboring country in the coming weeks? That's, I think, one of the main things that I wanted to try and answer. And I, we're, I'm still working on the algorithm for that, cleaning the data, since I don't have too much experience with that. So it's a little bit here and there. But does that sound like a better focus to you? Hey, Teddy, this is Ray Gipler. I have a question on the, or, or anyone on your team, on the visualization, and I put it in the chat there. It looked like 
two of the variables that you have are there's such a higher rate that they're really browning out the variation in the in the two other variables with a lower rate and can you make that into like a dual axis chart with a different scale on the right and get those uh, other two uh, at a different scale so we can see um or whoever you present you can see the variation a little better uh yeah we can do that um we i just put them all in one graph i guess for an example just to show how it works but yeah, we were working on that. There's more code and I've moved it over to Jupyter for presentation purposes, but in Visual Studio Code, that's where I'm doing most of my messing around with it. So if you want me to screen share right now, I can show you, I guess, the two variables that you're talking about were the COVID rate and the anosmia rate. So if you want to see that right now, I can show you how those two specifically correlate. Am I still screen sharing? You're currently not screen sharing, but okay. you can start screen so if I share and if we run this, um, do you have any country you would like to see or? Oh, any country is good. So let's do Italy. So here you can see in Italy, like I said, the graph needs to be formatted still. Um, our mentor Akshay has actually sent us some links to do that. You can see that the rate of COVID-like illnesses is significantly less than the rate of people experiencing loss of smell. In this survey, those are two different factors. So for example, one insight that I believe that we can pull from this is that the rate of people infected with COVID is actually significantly higher than those experiencing the symptoms. Because if loss of smell is its own category at around twice the rate of people experiencing all the other symptoms, and you can at least infer that there are significantly more people infected with this than experiencing symptoms or getting tested for it, for example. I'd be, I'd be curious to see if there is a rate in increase in anosmia as mask wearing went up, because what if people just thought they couldn't smell, but really they just had a mask on? I don't know. Um, we can also look at that. <laughs> That'd be interesting to see. Uh, so uh, Kristen had a really cool uh, comment and insight. I'd love to hear her uh, comment and also Russell as well. So let's hear from uh, Kristen and Russell on this, and then we'll go ahead and we'll go to the uh, rest of the questions in the queue. Okay. Hi, hi, Teddy. Um, my quick suggestion would be to go to a site like Slides Go or Slide Carnival. They've got tons of pre-formatted slide decks for every type of audience, every type of presentation. And it really adds a big value impact to the information you're delivering. Um, and it's really quick and easy to plug in your information into like a beautiful setup. So that could be something quick to do between now and your presentation tomorrow that I think your audience would really respond well to. Okay. Russell, you had some points here um, that I think are worth mentioning for the audience listening on the podcast. Sure. Um, so, so I had a question about the, the data sets that you guys have used. I, I know you mentioned the, the specific one you've used, but did you experiment with others? Um, <clears throat> and the reason I ask is that I've been doing um, analysis of multiple data sets globally available, and, and I've never found one yet that is reliable at a global level. So there's some that are, are good for, for US-centric data sets. There's some that are, are better for UK or Europe data sets. There's nothing really that can give you a good uh, understanding of, of how the COVID um, pandemic has been hitting, you know, the, the, the entire planet as a, as a global, um, at, at a global level. 
so, and, and I'm really only talking about the, the main characteristics here because I've not been looking into the, the nuanced data that you've been looking at, but just the three characteristics. So either uh, active cases, um, recovered cases, or deaths. That's what I've been doing most of my analysis on. And there's been some real issues with the data that I've uh, managed to find on GitHub. Uh, so interested to see if you've looked at other data sets. Um, yeah, so we had to use the data sets that we were provided with through Maryland, and this is one of them. There was another that Minar mentioned, and we've incorporated some of that, but there is significantly less data and more sparse data in there focusing on different aspects that we were having trouble correlating because this data set contain a lot of the same stuff to a similar degree. For example, the other one focused on people worried about finance and I forget what else. It was only two or three categories of data that really wouldn't have provided us much insight or allowed us to correlate anything together. So while we know that this data set is definitely not accurate, we were going with what we were provided, especially since I think a lot of the judges are from the University of Maryland system. We figured it would be okay to use this database as and not say it's accurate but use it as our baseline right on man so uh, eric had a great comment here he would recommend putting your biggest takeaway at the very beginning of the presentation then it's the hook bluff okay. bottom line up front um so right on guys that was excellent presentation thank you so much for um you know being brave enough to share it here with us um I'll go ahead and I'll give you guys a copy of the chat. I'll send that straight over to, uh, to Akshay and he can disseminate that to you because there's a lot of great advice in there. Um, I see there's one last comment here from Greg. And after uh, Greg's comment here, we'll move into the uh, the rest of the questions that I got queued up. Greg, go for it. Oh, it's just a, a quick question I have for you guys. The the um, columns, I guess you selected, did you do any particular like special cleanup for them um, to to make it fit? I'm imagining even if they were populated with the most data, did you have to still explore it and, and try to change a few things about it? Like, did you, did you, was it of highest quality? Uh, so this data is exactly as it is grabbed from the API because okay. the API had two options, a daily value or a smooth value. And this data is all the smooth value. So for example, someone reporting a COVID-like illness, they're going to be sick for a few days in a row reporting that. So the smooth value accounts for that. Okay. And that's the only data cleaning we have done because beyond that, we couldn't really think of anything that would needed to be added or removed or... Um, really modified. Okay. Thank you. Of course. Awesome. Great job, guys. Yeah, Thank thanks you. for sharing that with us, man. Really appreciate that. Before we move on to the questions, shout out to Eric, who just, he has some good news to share with us. I'm going to let him share the good news with us. Eric, go for it. Yeah, I totally just uh, signed my signed a job offer today. So if it was if it wasn't DocuSign, the ink would still be wet. It was like an hour ago. So oh yeah, man! Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. Eric. That's awesome, man. What what can you share the 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 job title or role or company location? Any of that stuff? Yeah, I don't think any of it's classified. So it's a <clears throat> senior senior analyst with Lending Tree. So I'll be should be working in business loans and investment area. So. I'm really excited about it. Right on, man. Congratulations. I know you've been Thank you. a lot of hard work and, and doing doing a lot to get there. So uh, very, you guys very, are my inspiration. Awesome. <laughs> Glad to be here. Super happy for you, man. That's awesome. Great news. Uh, shout out to everybody else that just joined in. I see Dave's here. David Knickerbocker is here. Nice to see you guys. Joe's in the building. Curtis, Jennifer, Timothy, uh, 
then of course really happy to see all of you guys here man makes my day uh so we go go for it yeah so um last time i came here there was uh i asked y'all a question right about aws scraping lambda docker all that good stuff um I essentially spent this week working on it. Uh, before I started, I knew what the letters meant. Now I know slightly more. Um, I ran uh, a Lambda test. It worked out well. I decided to drop it because I realized that my Selenium scripts, uh, the vast majority of them, um, last over 15 minutes. And that was kind of like a hard cutoff. So I decided to drop that, went off to um, figure out EC2. Um, I created... Uh, an EC2 instance, uh, connected it up to an S3 bucket, uh, loaded up Selenium, loaded up, um, you know, like everything else I needed. And I got it running. And I was very happy, very big deal for me, big milestone. But um, I only got like a small snippet of it running. And whenever I tried to scale it to the, um, to hit the rest of like the URLs that I had, it got to maybe like the third one and then just slowed and then crashed. Now, I just did it uh, basically right before uh, we got on here. So my thinking is I'm running on the free tier of the EC2, like AWS EC2 stuff. And I'm thinking that I know that Selenium is a bit of a resource hog. So is all I have to do just kind of like upgrade my instance, pay uh, a whole like four and a half cents an hour or something like that, like suck it up. And then and, and then I'll be good to go. Or is do y'all think that there might be something else that I might be running into? You're running a micro to, instance. Uh, yeah, Vin or Joe, go for it. Joe. Sorry. Oh, go for it. Oh yeah, are you running a micro instance? I imagine since it's a free tier. It's the free one. Yeah, I think it's like yeah. Two. That's kind of like running your code on a Raspberry Pi for a bit. Gotcha. So, I actually think it's about the same specs. I'm looking at one. Um, yeah, you might want to bump it up a bit. Okay, that's uh, actually really nice to know that I yeah know, like, i mean if it works it works issue. right until it doesn't work the thing is you don't know what it is right so right um put 20 bucks on it being memory it that's exactly what it sounds like yeah. is that you're basically running out of space if it was java i'd say yeah heat problem but i'm betting you're not using java so no negative. yeah so i mean <laughs> but that's exactly what it sounds like is you get this millennium falcon sounding you know, where it starts up and then just craters. So I'm guessing you're holding something in memory. And if you can figure out a way to, to dump it or save it someplace else, that might actually, you know, clear up your issue, you know, even on a micro. But Joe's probably right. You're probably going to need to go up to something more beefy. Okay. That sounds like a, an easy enough solution. So I'm, I'm cool with that. Thanks, y'all. What was it you were trying to do? Do you say selenium? Were you doing some scraping? Yeah. Yeah. I'm basically just trying to migrate... Um, my little small army of scrapers on my local machine up to the cloud so okay. that it can run there without me dealing with it we, essentially we go when i've when i've played with pi selenium it, it can be quite finicky i just want to oh, encourage yeah. you just do a lot of extra google searching um but yeah it's it's uh that's why I gave that comment or that suggestion I did last week but yeah, yeah. once you have to hit pi selenium you're signing up for a lot of uh little tiny battles, a lot of Google searches. I just want to confirm <laughs> yeah. that you're not alone when you hit these uh, speed bumps. For sure. Yeah, I always try to hit it um, with Scrapey 
first. And if, if that's not working, uh, if I can't grab, you know, like, I don't know, Ajax calls from that or something like that, then I'll, I'll jump into Selenium and everything tends to work out um, with those sites after everything's actually rendered. So what I do for my personal research is I've got a cheap free tier that I do that I use for scraping social media um, and doing some very ta- uh, tiny classification work. Um, and then I've got a very beefy server that I often forget to turn off um, that I use for more heavy duty scraping. Um, and that one will cost me about 10 bucks a day. So it always sucks when I find out two days later, I forgot to turn it off. So um, question following up that is, is turning it off, stopping the instance or is yeah. it terminating? Stop it. Okay. So don't confuse the two, by the way. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. Is it don't confuse the two. Definitely yeah. stop. Like don't hit the terminate one. So so whenever you stop an instance, does it keep um, like files the 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 data on there, and it you don't have to like reload Python, you don't have to reload yep. libraries and things like that. Think of it like your computer that you're using right now. Right? Just turn it off. Yeah, when you turn it off, it doesn't erase everything. I hope that would suck if it does, but um, be awful. <laughs> both the assumption it's fine, right? So yeah, it's the same thing. You're just terminating the instance. Or terminating the instance would be like literally terminating the instance. So don't do that. But if you turn it off, you're fine. So and my it's... two my two instances I have have identical code on them. It's just I keep one of them off and only use it for certain occasions. So that's one other option you can do. And whenever you stop it, you stop getting charged too, right? Like that's the- uh, and that's what I was about to jump on. Um, drives. If you have mounted drives, watch out. You'll still be charged for those because you can stop and terminate an instance, but those drives can still live out there in space. And they don't charge a lot for them, but you can, you can rack up some charges that way too. So keep an eye on your drive space. Oh, the other thing to keep in mind is if you um, have an IP address, attached um like a static ip you, you want to make sure that if you disassociate that from your instance that you also get rid of that um ip address because you'll be charged for that too mm, okay so there's some gotchas you, you'll know it when you see your bill so yeah <laughs> these are this is tuition you got to pay to be part of the cool AWS. <laughs> okay yo vin uh, when you were talking about drives i remember reading something about like like an ebs thing is that the same is that different Oh God, Amazon has every drive type that you could ever want to mount okay. and their acronyms form make no sense at all until you've been doing it for about a year. <laughs> so yeah, they've got different types of drives, different drive types, different ways of well mounting and then accessing them and you can partition them and you do it. Like you can do a ton of different things. And even if you're using windows, I mean, you can do all this through windows. You can do it through one of their Linux instances too. You can automate, drives to spin up and down you i mean just it's it is as deep as you want to script it so if you want it to be nice and easy you can do a windows instance they're a little more expensive but then you can play with the drives in a whole lot more sort of visual way and it's sometimes a good way to start out because you get a better feel for it using windows then you switch over to linux and it's a whole lot more i don't know in my head it was conceptually easier seeing it in windows and then doing it in a linux instance it just made more sense so there, there's a lot of different ways that you can play around with drives, partitioning them, using them, especially for things like scraping. The way that you partition might end up helping make your work a little bit more efficient or at least keeping things separated. And you can save, like I said, once you've mounted a drive, that drive, even if you kill the instance, that drive, if it's a 
if it's external, if it's not one of the things that was included as part of the instance, if you mount that drive, that drive survives. And so if you end up scraping something to that drive, you can kill off the instance, but it'll still live out there. But it sounds like you said you already attached it to an S3 bucket and that's where you're scraping to. Yeah. So for this instance, that's not so much important, but think about it going forward. I mean, having a drive that you can mount to different instances as you spin them up and having the same thing over and over again on that drive, kind of having it as a known entity for, for configuration, even it's kind of cool to have. So worth yeah. playing around with. Keep in mind, like these, these uh, um, servers, these EC2 instances, they're, they're meant to be ephemeral in some sense, right? Like never treat it like a special snowflake where you expect this server is going to be around from now until kingdom come. I, I can't even count how many times like, we've had issues with servers dying for no apparent reason. It just happens. So um, one idea too is just have a boot script. If, assuming you're going to go with EC2, like a boot script and just like, have that load when you're going to fire up a server. Cause that way you actually, I think you probably get away with using a spot instances. Now that you're getting really nerdy on this thing. Um, so spot instances are instances that are like way cheaper than your regular ones. And you can just throw them away. Cause if you're doing scraping too, like that's kind of cool. Cause you just need like that instance to run for a bit. You don't really care if it's going to be around. I, so. I read a little bit about spot instances, but I got the, I got the idea that you weren't able to schedule them reliably yeah, kind of reliable sometimes um, okay so if i wanted if i just needed something to run like yeah i think of them, think of them like a really flaky friend like they might show up and hang out or they might not and that's just how it goes but if they show up then it's fun right and you save some money but if they don't then not a big deal you just get a regular and you're fine but i think to vince's point right like you know you can detach you can keep your um your, your your disc separated from the server and that's really handy because he's you should count 100% the server's going to go down at some point and it won't be there. So don't get too attached to it. I think this is what we're both trying to say. Cool. Yeah, that's definitely good to know because I, I did not think about that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you won't, you probably wouldn't until it like disappeared and you're like, what the hell just happened? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, yeah. Thanks, y'all. Hey, dumb question coming in hot for you, Wiko. So you're, you're scraping, say, prices of products, something yeah. like that, then storing in S3, then... You're taking that to perform analysis, which are own data, internal data with the company you work for. Is that what yeah. the purpose is? Okay. Just wanted to make sure I understand. Yeah. Uh, oh, thank you. Right on, man. That was a valuable lesson in how like, you know, cloud technologies work. Thank you guys very much for going deep on that. I appreciate it. Um, so I just want to shout out that Tom sounds extra sexy today. I think he got a new microphone. Is that, is that what happened, Tom? So um, I was blessed to be working in Laramie, Wyoming. Um, until COVID hit. And then my manager and I agreed, why do I need to be traveling back and forth between Eagle, Idaho and Laramie? And I had wanted to move the family out there, but um, mostly to be closer to Ben Taylor, of course, who wouldn't want to be closer to him. But I actually ran my own podcast for like four years, and this was my baby. And the only thing I can't show you is my new camera that I finally got back from Laramie too. So yeah, my my setup is uh, sweet again. So I've got only four monitors for my main workstation and then my Linux box over here. So I know I'm a lightweight compared to most people, but it's just back to normal. Thank God. On a MacBook Air. So I think I might be the latest weight of them all right now. Um, so uh, sounds good though, Tom. Next up, we got Greg with his question. So Greg, go for it. Yeah, I, I have a more generic question. Uh, a question to 
anyone here who wants to take it, can a business person manage a fully developed data science team? And what are the skills required for that at the question. minimum? I'd love to hear from uh, David Linger on this one. Oh, why are you picking on me first? <laughs> because I, I, I think this is right up your alley. That's why. Um, Greg, you know, I love you, but I'm going to say this with all, based on all my experience. No. The answer is no. Technical people, engineering people, they like, they want to work with somebody who knows the stuff. So if that business person knows all the things, okay, great. But in my experience, that usually doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> it's, I know <laughs> that in my experience, the answer is no. And I'll just leave it at that. I'd love to hear good, good. from, uh, sorry, uh, let's hear from, yeah, let's hear from David uh, Knickerbocker and then uh, Vin Fischista on this one. Oh. I think David is unmuted. Is that on accident uh, it's on accident but okay. i'll talk okay. um i've been in engineering for my whole career and like david said um well one of my pet peeves is working for managers who are not technical at all and give you unrealistic expectations because they think you do magic um, and i've seen that throughout my entire career and data science still has the magic feel to it and even sometimes feels like alchemy to me um, and I've seen so much misunderstanding, even in very technical companies, like I work for McAfee, and we still have people that think data science is magic. Um, and so I, I agree with David that data science is pretty far out stuff. Um, and so it's useful to have people that at least have some hands-on experience to working on data, at least at the statistics level, um, or are pretty powerful with Excel, at least. Um, and not just some MBA, you know, that, that just finished school. So uh, we're engineers. We need specifics. We, we, get, we get laser focused on an idea. And like even this week, my, my JIRA is very vague and it drives me nuts. And so that's my own fault. It's just I have a lot of small administrative stories to take care of. Um, but I prefer it when I know exactly what it is I need to build. And I don't think that soft skills are enough for that. Fair enough. Uh, if I could just add one more thing, um, this might be a bit heretical. In my very long career, as Joe Reese will tell you, I've been coding since the 1800s. Uh, it's my experience has universally been it's easier for technical people to pick up business than the other way around. Then, mm -hmm. what do you think? So, two types of leadership. Some teams need technical leadership. Some teams have a, a group that is needing somebody who's very, very technical as a leader and who needs technical leadership. And that's one type of leadership. And that's the type of leadership most engineers are used to getting. Other teams need leadership at a, an extremely high level. And I'm not just talking about like a manager or a director. Some teams need a leader. And that is somebody who can be a mentor uh, outside of the technical realm. Some teams need to skill up. There are people within teams, as teams are expanding, you're going to need to promote people. You're going to need to train leaders. You're going to need to start positioning people to move into other parts of the organization. And I've seen transitional leaders come in that were not technical at all and do that and become leader leaders and become mentors and teach you know, sometimes it's as simple as teaching business. In other cases, you're teaching your replacement. And so I've seen that happen where a team has a leader for a year, 
you know, I haven't really seen it for much longer than that. About a year, you'll have a leader come into that team, coach the team and sort of raise them to be more of a part of the business and get individuals in the team ready to be promoted and start moving into other organizations or in some cases starting their own teams. And so I've seen that be successful. There is also a very rare third asterisk instance where a team is so senior, it does not need any technical leadership. Very rare that there is no technical leadership required. That would be an extraordinarily senior team. And I've seen it once. I've heard of it reading books. And in that case, all you need is a leader. And truly, it's somebody who stands and takes the horrific brunt of dealing with the rest of the organization and is also able to keep the team functioning, cohesive, collaborating, you know, all those sort of fuzzy and soft type of roles that you could have as a leader. But that team is so senior, it doesn't need a technical leader. Thanks, Ren. Yep. So what would the, what would the, I mean, this is a dumb question, but what would the difference be between like a, a strategic lead and a technical lead? Does a data science team need a strategic lead or are they solely requiring a technical lead? I think a team needs both. I'll be honest. I think there needs to be somebody typically above the technical lead who at least has it in their sort of deliverables or in their their goals to be part of the team and provide some sort of strategic leadership or maybe even, you know, some of the roles that I said to train up and sort of provide a deeper connection to the business and also shield that team from, especially in larger businesses, you can get, uh, you can get dragged into some meetings you don't want to be in. And so I, I think it's good to have someone there who knows the business well enough that they can keep the team functioning and also train up and upskill. Most teams also need a very good technical lead because they're not so much engineers, especially data scientists, machine learning engineers, that whole ops side that's emerging now, researchers too. Leadership's different for those types of teams. And if you don't do the job, you don't really understand the differences in leading a team like that because there's a level of independence and oversight that has to live together. And there's different types of oversights that you can do in a technical team that wouldn't work in any other team. And if you try to get too granular with a technical team, you're going to have individuals who are smarter than you are and who are going to run you like a stop sign. And so there's a, a totally different dynamic being a technical leader on especially data science teams, because there's going to be at least five people that are smarter than you on that team. However, there is some level of capability that you have that is above and beyond and that team is going to need guidance from you and is going to need sort of a deeper understanding of how they do their job from that technical leader. And so they do need that in almost every case. It's a really, really good question. I really like this discussion. Um, I, I, ben just hopped back into the room. Ben, let me know if you're, you're around because I think uh, you'd have a really interesting perspective on this as well. And then after Ben, we'll hear from uh, Russell on this. Ben, are you are you here? I did have a question for I'm you. here. What what was the question oh. or what's the topic? Yeah. Uh, Greg, do you want to ask your question? Then we'll hear from, from Thomas as well. Yeah. Ben, do you think a business person can manage a fully developed data science team or department effectively? And what is the minimum skill? What are the minimum skills they need to perform that job well? We can't hear you, Ben, or yeah. I can't hear you. Yeah. I can't. yeah. He's thinking. I, oh, sorry. I think I saw... I had with Dave. So I, I heard, I heard Dave station. Yeah. Sorry guys. Yeah. So it sounds like. Ben's I need, having... 
some audio issues. I think the answer is no. I agree with Dave. Yeah. Um, awesome. So uh, Russell had some interesting points here as well. I'd love to hear from Russell. And then Tom, I know you uh, wanted to jump in as well. So we'll get to you after that, Russell. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm saying that creativity and critical thinking, I think, are, are very underappreciated skills that can benefit people um, that don't have specific groundings in one specific skill set. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, a, a business professional can then lead highly uh, technical teams, but I think they can get across some boundaries. Uh, however, for this particular field, I think that if the business professional has had a grounding in some of those technical aspects before, so perhaps, you know, five, 10 years ago, as long as they understand some of the basics, then I think they can operate quite well. If they, if they don't understand the basics at all, so they've come from an accountancy background or uh, I don't know, any, any other any other background at all that doesn't really um, gel well with these technical aspects, and I think they'll struggle. That's an interesting point. I'd, I'd be interested to, to hear, Greg, when you say technical, like what do you mean by technical? Do you mean specifically when it comes to you know coding and that type of tech or technical when it comes to understanding machine learning concepts and, and things like that? All of that, right? So I'm thinking even the understanding the underlying infrastructure that's needed to empower a data science team, right? So um, from from databases to uh, the concept of data science to uh, the systems themselves, um, when it comes to, you know, deploying pipelines, um, managing a data science lifecycle project, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, the way I, I see it, is, you know, this point, it is probably best that that person kind of uh, leaves uh, most of that non-technical behind and really deep dive into the technical requirements behind all of this. So you have to be in the know uh, to be able to help that team, right? So um, that, that was a general question. I was just curious to, to see right. what, what you guys thought, so... Yeah, Tom, you're you're gonna um, chime in there. I'd love to hear from you. And then I want to want to hear what Joe has to say about Conway's law in in this situation. Sure, Greg, did you was that a question or a statement? I apologize. I was trying to track you. My last one. It was question. Yeah. Um, did we have an answer for that? Because I was curious. Well, you, I tell you about- what, I'll ask my question too. But if uh, someone has an answer to <laughs> Greg's question, I want to hear it. But I'll, I'll go quick. Then I was really wanting to ask you. Um, so I'm fortunate to be buddies with uh, John Thompson and uh, oh shoot Gilberts uh, and his last name, the guy that wrote the book on <laughs> people skills for analytical thinkers. I Kellen I Kellen Boom. Yeah. Thank you. Gosh, I can't say we um, Gilbert and I have been talking through some concepts of a new book he wants to look at. And I, I really love the way those guys think. But then I just want your take on this. I kind of think, uh, well, so Greg's a good friend of mine. And he's he's a phenomenally good data scientist student. And uh, I think he plays down that he's not a data scientist. To me, he's just a data scientist in training. But I look at Greg and he gets it. He gets the data science space. He gets its benefit to the business. He's an expert at reconnaissance. I could imagine if Greg were running a team, he'd know better than anyone I've met so far how to look out for that team to make sure it was giving value to the organization. To me, that's what the main 
job of a, a leader of a data scientist group would be, or an analytics group, let's just make it more general. I'm just one, for example, I, I love a story that John Thompson tells that we did this for the students that came earlier. He'll have a new data scientist give their first presentation to the data science team first, because they know what's going to happen. They're going to try to show off what they know. And then they point out, who was that presentation for? Oh, yeah. That's not going to go over very well, is it? And and it's like they have to get it out of their system. Now, just tell them what. They already think you're smart because you're in our group. So, um, But do you agree with that? Like, to me, Greg and I become buddies. I see how he thinks. To me, he's like the epitome of the perfect data science group leader. It's more of reconnaissance, and he's like the connector between the nonlinear geek thinkers and the linear business thinkers, do you like what I'm saying? Does that gel with what you were trying to say? I like what you're saying. I think there's a different level. Like Greg, just based on that definition right there and the description that you, you gave, sounds like a VP level. That sounds like you have, and this is the way I like to structure, you have a manager who's not really a manager. They're running a team. They're the technical lead. And we've gotten away from this technical lead too much. And I, I I say the word manager and people run screaming because they don't want to lose their technical skills. I say the word technical lead and nobody wants the job because wait, and I have to manage. And so there's no, there's no win here, but I like to, the team wants a technical leader and someone who takes that role probably wants to get into leadership and go more towards at least leadership strategy. One of those two, if not both Above that, you have to have a director who's getting some of the business acumen, who's now making that transition from, I am a technical leader to, I am a leader in the business. And I now understand a little bit more than just what the team does. I understand how the teams that I'm probably leading now interact with each other and how as a unit, we interact with other units. And Greg sounds like a VP, someone that could mentor a director, someone that could lead an organization of data scientists or a group of teams. And I think that's where it sounds like Greg fits. And I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I think it takes a fairly mature organization to have a space for Greg because many organizations now just have one data science team or two data science teams. One of them's usually stuck in marketing. The other one's, you know, on its own in engineering someplace. And, you know, when they start to meet and they start to work together and then you add another team and another team, that's when you start looking at having Greg be very, 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 very useful to a company. But trying to put Greg into a role where he's running a single small team, it's a setup to fail, in my opinion, because the team's expectations aren't ready for Greg. Yeah. And in the ELI, ELI five cents, like explain it like I'm five. To me, that's the real art that can say I can collect and I can connect the nonlinear thinking talent to the needs of the organization. I can get the I can get the ultra geeks excited about what the organization needs and get them focused on it. Yeah, and it is. And that's a that's a maturity step. Trying to get a company to understand how that should look in the need for that role and then getting the team to understand the need for that role and why without Greg, life has not been great. But with Greg, life is going to be a whole lot easier. Your projects are going to be way more interesting. And from the other side, the business is going to get a lot more money out of the team. 
you know, in trying to teach engineering groups that technical leadership is not the same as sort of that director level of leadership and that VP level of organizational leadership, it's difficult. I mean, I had a really hard time when I was first promoted not doing my job and being a leader. A real hard time with that. I couldn't, it took me forever, but I had somebody like Greg who taught me how to do that. And that's why I think the, the value is huge, but the company has to understand it or Greg gets run over. What I just heard you say is they took my fun away until I realized my new job was making sure my old buddies had more fun now. I was actually my first leadership gig. I was horrible, but yes, I would like to have think, I like to have thought of myself that way. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very nice way of saying it, but no, realistically, I wasn't that great. <laughs> Sorry. But who is though, right? When, when you're expected to make the, the supposed promotion from technical individual contributor to a lead into a leader, that's not a natural fit normally, right? I mean, engineers, and this is a, a notorious field, filled with graveyards of horrible managers and, um, you know, and I would say that, that most of the time, the management promotion ends up being like sort of a white elephant gift, or it, it just kind of sucks, actually. Like, you don't want to do that. And But I think people need to be honest with themselves, too, and understand, like, one, is this something I actually want to do? And two, the company should ask, like, is this actually the right person to do it? Or do we just bring in somebody who's actually good at managing people? Because um, I think the success rate of engineers turning into great managers is not great. And a lot of that's just because management isn't taught in the engineering discipline either, right? Like, show me where that happens. I'm sure it happens some places, but in the vast majority of companies, um, individual contributors just in general aren't really taught how to lead or how to manage. You should kind of have to figure it out. So I think all of us, to your point, Ben, I think all of us were probably like really shitty managers at the beginning. And like, would say if you weren't, you weren't trying hard enough or something, I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, based on the, I really love what we're talking about. And uh, I can't wait for y'all to see the material that Gilbert's developing for his next book. It's pretty amazing. So, yeah, th thank you for, for that. And I don't want to take too much time. I know a lot of people have, have some work. And next week, maybe if you allow me or pre we can bring this up again. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. And, 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 I, and this is something I'm trying to understand. Um, I'm seeing a little bit more products that are powered by machine learning. And to me, are we going to see a rise of folks who know how to manage these products where we can release features that are machine learning powered and you can control how to optimize the cost of releasing a machine learning powered feature and manage the life cycle of that machine learning powered product. So I'll leave you guys with that thought. Is it necessary to have someone heavily technical to manage the life cycle of that product or somebody who's just good at business, managing their cost, understanding how to scale and understanding how to target customer needs to fit into that product to come up with solutions? So that's what I was thinking about. Thank you guys for your responses. Yeah, I definitely see a short answer. Yes, from Joe. And I saw Vin shaking his head. Yes, as well. Greg, that was an excellent question. I really love that discussion. I think that's very relevant to, you know, the audience of the artist of data science. I feel like this audience, this group, we are the future leaders of data science. Um, and, you know, having conversations like this, I think is important. So thank you so much for asking that question. Um, I really, really, really liked it. Tom, go for it. Just one last quick thing. All these things we're discussing, we need to all think this way, regardless of where we're at. 
we need to like Vin and Vin would need to remember what it was like to be an individual contributor. But when we're ICs, we need to remember what our leaders are going through and help them with what we can. Um, that's that's all I wanted to add. Yeah, hundred percent agree with you, uh, Greg. Yeah, I'm definitely beyond like beyond uh, down to talk about this next week as well too, because this is a good good topic. Thank you for for asking. Um, so let's go. So just a real quick, guys, so you guys know where you stand in line. We got Anas, then Vikram, then Naresh, then Kristen, then Curtis. Um, a lot of questions, so we'll try to get through these as quick as possible. But Anas, go for it. Uh, thank you. Uh, so recently I've been working on an NLP project, and I've been doing uh, sentiment analysis research. So one of the questions is, what is an accuracy measure for sentiment analysis that considers the sample size? Because you see like one of the, so whenever I read the research paper, they say they used uh, this data set that has 2000 examples, but, and they have like 94 accuracy from this model. But I mean, so what is a representative measure that says 2000 uh, sentence is enough. So I think that's my question. I don't know if you understood my question because I'm still working on this. <laughs> I know precisely. I'm, I've got a quick response. Yeah, go for it. Go for it. So I, I love sentiment questions because sentiment is really complicated because what sentiment are you talking about? Are you talking about Twitter sentiment um, where there's that 5 million tweets, smiley face, frowny face? Are you talking about Amazon review sentiment or are you talking about price action sentiment where they all mean very different things and they will all have very different accuracies? Um, it's been a while since I played with sentiment, but I remember there was there was an open source library that incorporated six or seven different sentiment training sets. And so I guess the short answer is it's hard to, to know what a good accuracy is because it depends on the type of sentiment. If you're doing price action sentiment, for stock trading, then I might argue you have a very low accuracy, but it's still a very valuable model. So I'm curious what type of sentiment you're going after. And now we're doing social media like Twitter, Facebook. And also in a single sentence, you can have multiple emotions. The first half can be happy and the second half can express sadness. And so human language is a bit difficult. Um, I'm reading through a book right now on sentiment analysis that I bought off Amazon. You can find it because it's just a bunch of uh, emoticons on a blue background. It's a really cool book. And he goes very deep into uh, the usefulness of splitting on sentences rather than looking for sentiment through a paragraph. Like when you're looking at an Amazon review, there's typically one sentiment tied to that review if it's about a pair of sunglasses. But for instance, if it's a tweet, um, People are different on social media. You know, you could express multiple things in, in even two or three sentences. Um, and if you're scraping an internet forum where people can do a wall of text, there, there, that could be seriously complicated stuff. And so sentiment analysis, you can go pretty deep into. Uh, and I, I play with Twitter data all the time, even for work. We're doing some security ideas with Twitter data right now for an innovation group I'm in. So um, one nice thing is you don't need a billion rows of data for sentiment analysis, depending on what you're doing. If you're trying to build a violence classifier, you can do that uh, with just 2000 rows of data. You know, if you're looking for hate speech, that doesn't take very much data at all, you know, or toxic speech doesn't take very much data at all. Uh, if you're trying to do text translation or something like that, and I think those are the big boy or big people, big, big Google problems, you know, so it's, it's different. So sentiment problems are a lot of fun. Yeah, my project right now is mostly like positive, negative, because I'm doing it. I'm trying to train uh, Arab, one of the Arabic dialects models 
because there isn't any translation for Arabic dialects out there. So that, but that needs collecting a lot of data. So I don't know what, how much data I should get from Twitter so I can have a representative model. I feel like we might have gotten away from your question, Anas. You were really asking about accuracy and metrics for this? Uh, mainly, yes. So um, I, don't, I, I don't mean this as a criticism toward the group, but I don't think we've touched on that yet, have we? Um, I, I think, yeah, I think the, the answer was mostly because sentiment analysis is very wide and it depends on what is the accuracy you're looking for. So It depends on your training set too, though, like is your data yeah. labeled? And if, if it's not labeled, I have to create my own data sets very often to do whatever whatever it is I'm exploring for NLP. Um, and so if I'm doing a violence classifier, I scrape a whole bunch of tweets and start labeling them ones or zeros, you know, depending um, and so your accuracy depends on the quality of your labeling. And if there is no labeling, you're going to have to do that labeling. Um, and I find that the first few iterations, I've mislabeled things because after going through 2,000 tweets while drinking three beers, you start to just kind of glaze over. Um, but your machine learning helps you find your errors and then you fix them during the next iteration. So um, accuracy is a very, accuracy is an almost meaningless metric to me when I'm doing NLP work. Um, but it does give me a hint that things are at least getting better. But for me, as accuracy goes up, I'm running into fewer headaches. That's about it. Language is more complicated than, than other stuff. So. I strongly agree with what David's saying. I'm wondering, are you using some type of K-fold? How, how are you splitting your data set? Yeah, the thing is, I, uh, I'm still trying to, I mean, not trying, I'm planning to label the data first. And it seems like BERT model will do the best job. So... And I've never touched that before. So I think it would be an interesting idea to work on that. If you need help, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I love doing this kind of stuff. Great. Thank you. Yeah, if anybody has any more insight to that question, definitely go ahead and uh, type it right there into the chat. Uh, for now, we'll go ahead and keep it moving. Let's go to Vikram next. Um, so next month, I'm having an interview. So in that, my HR told me there's a possibility for asking a product metric question. And I'm very new to this kind of question. So I would appreciate if anyone could give an approach or framework to answer that kind of questions. He said, for example, users are going down for, like for subscribing a newsletter by 10 to 10 per, 10 to 15% every month. So what would you do and suggest to improve that? So I think I'm going to let Greg jump in on this question because uh, you're, you're our product management expert. But I would say, I would start off with just first try to play with the product that they have, right? Like if you can download the product yourself and just click around with it, play with it, see what it's all about. That's great. Second, what industry is this in? Like, is it user generated content? Is it subscription-based model? Like these are the type of questions I would want to look into. Um, and I'd also recommend Lean Analytics. Great book that I think might be able to help you get the right mindset. Um, but with that, I'll turn this over to Greg. I want to make sure I, I, I captured your, your question, Vikram. Are you saying... Um, what are what are the product metrics you should focus on if you're trying to understand the performance of, of a product? Is that uh, yes, correct. Okay, metrics. okay. Um, so for me, what what has helped is is kind of like um, going back to uh, the method of um, design thinking and 
for, for a certain product. And design thinking is what will give you uh, a pulse for the uh, performance of the product or solution that you come up for your targeted market. Um, and because with, with that, you are able to perform some tests and measure whether that solution is effective or not. And design thinking allows you to uh, spot that pain point, come up with a solution slash product test and readjust until that test is deemed the most, um, uh, you know, effective for, for the product, right? So uh, with that, that's, that's to me, that's how you build the list of metrics that truly matter uh, for continuous monitoring of, of that product. And I'm, I'm staying a little bit high level here, but um, hopefully I touched on what, what you're looking for. Yes, thank you for that. Can I just throw in something small? Um, if you're, if you're new to like just digital analytics in general, I would say sign up for the Google analytics demo store so that you can just like get in and see what the metrics are about a product that a product might be looking at or an e-commerce store or something and see like, Oh, like bounce rate. What the heck is bounce rate? You know, then Google that and just start getting, getting to know, you know, sessions, pays, views, users, new users, and just kind of like thinking in those terms. And then you'll be able to maybe think on the fly a little bit about whatever the specific product is that you're interviewing for in whatever case. Yeah. It's for me, for me too. I, I, I leverage a lot of the, um, I guess the, uh, it's kind of like a, some sort of wiki. Uh, if there's a wiki for business uh, metrics, those are super useful because I can look at these uh, metrics for each of the products that I'm interested in and come up with, you know, a list of metrics that I'd like to improve. And once I hone in on the list, this list of metrics, then I can work backwards to figure out, well, what kind of solution do I need to improve these metrics? So um, that's, that's what I'm banking on. And, and Ben put in the chat here, depends on the product for sure. Customer churn, click through rate, et cetera. Uh, Dave, Langer, do you have any um, advice to, to drop here? Yeah, so I've, I've spent a lot of time, especially in recent years, formulating KPIs essentially that are disproportionately valuable for the success of the product or the business. Because it's fairly easy to be like, I'm going to create 25 KPIs. Um, <clears throat> I'm not a big fan of Google Analytics, to be absolutely honest with you. I kind of detest it. So I tend to, I don't use that as an example because it'll flood you with all these different kinds of metrics. And usually what you want is three to five key KPIs that represent what is the actual levers that you have for making money. So if you're interviewing for a potential product management role, what you want to do is sit down and think about the nature of the product and say, what are the disproportionately valuable levers that allow them to make money? And depending on the nature of the product, that might all be top of the funnel where it might be primarily bottom of the funnel based on the cost characteristics of the product. Software, for example, it's usually top of the funnel because the margin is so high, you don't really care about what's going on at the bottom of the funnel. So think about what are those disproportionate metrics. So for example, things like it might be engagement rate, might be the actual thing that really matters. It's not bounce rate. It's not the number of people that land on your page. It's like how many people actually engage with your page and how do they actually interact with the product? 
that might be a disproportionately valuable lever for actually making money. So generally speaking, those are the kinds of things that um, I would look for, right? The three to five KPIs that seem disproportionately valuable in terms of the nature of the product and how it makes money and emphasize those. I completely agree with it. Dave said, they'll be much more excited to hire you during the interview if you touch on a big problem. If they think you can make money for them, that's exciting. And there's always that that crap of wanting to fall for like vanity metrics. Um, you mentioned one like traffic to your site might be one that, that is a vanity metric. Um, how do we, I guess, how do we identify various vanity metrics based on the product type? I don't know if that question makes sense at all or not, but. Yeah, it does. And here's my experience. If people push back on your metric, it's probably a good one. Vanity metrics are one, are one is everyone goes, yeah, that's a great metric. I'm totally down for that one. That's usually a dead giveaway that it's not actually <laughs> going to help anything. I've actually had people argue with me about metrics because they essentially said, that's too hard for us to move. That's actually the metric that you want to use. And when it comes to like um, business model, like what should we think about for metrics? Like, let's say if we have a subscription-based model versus a model where maybe it's not a subscription, it's just like a one-time purchase. I mean, like there's, there's different, uh, I think there's what's called buy till you die or something like that. Um, different models like that. So in those kinds of models, CAC, customer acquisition cost, very, very important. And then CLV, because those two things work together to say, if I subtract CAC from CLV, that's how much money I make. So those are like two key ones, especially in like any sort of SaaS subscription-based model in my experience. Yeah, that's customer acquisition cost and lifetime value. So those are mm-hmm. two things you want to look into as well. Um, so hopefully, Vikram, that answered your question. We're going to go ahead and move on to Naresh. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Um, Naresh, you got you to take care of your microphone, my friend. Uh, is it proper now? I'm sorry. Uh, not quite. Hold it, hold it right close to your face. Okay. Can you guys hear me now? That's a lot better. Okay. Sorry about that. Um, my question is, what transition does it take to AI engineering from data science? Besides technical skills, what other skills are needed to survive in AI engineering? Could you repeat all of that? Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So what transition does it take to break into AI engineering from data science? Besides technical skills, what other skills are needed to survive in AI engineering? So is AI engineering, like you mean same thing as like machine learning engineer type of roles? That's what I'm guessing. I'd, I'd love to hear from, from Vin on this one. And then uh, if anybody else wants to jump in uh, right after I Vin, think- go for it. I think I could help with this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, please. Not And Vin, please do jump in if you know. Um, Narish, are you asking like engineers that are using AI for cutting edge stuff and robotics and control system design, stuff like that? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, okay. And so you're really asking what's it, what's it take to get into that? Yes. Okay. Now I need to qualify. Uh, I, well, it's kind of shy to say this, but I consider myself an expert in multi-physical system modeling, control system design, and I'm pretty good at AI. I just love to learn it. But <clears throat> I think it's like we would answer anything. You're just going to have to start doing passionate projects. Um, this is something I could hear Ben Taylor telling you. You just got to start demonstrating passion in that area. You've got to start um, creating portfolio stuff that shows how you're tracking um, practical projects to implement AI in control systems, in systems c- controls, in 
and, um, and, and just show that it's okay if they're toy projects too, where you're just demonstrating that you're growing in that field and that knowledge, but you just got to get started and start walking that, that trail. I hope that's helping Narish. And yep. so, so he, he typed a question out here as well. Um, just so it's reiterated for everyone listening on the podcast. It's what transition does it take to break into AI engineering from data science besides technical skills, what other skills are needed to survive in AI engineering? So Tom definitely touched on a few. I, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not an AI engineer by any means, but I would like to, to, to say that this is a truth, maybe just curiosity, passion to learn, willingness yes. to, 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 to pick up new things and stay on top of trends and stuff like that. Absolutely, Harpreet. Okay. Yeah. And, and it, it, I guess what we're saying, and we're, we're both saying it to you is, you're going to have to be good at peddling the fact that you're growing in this field and just keep, don't be afraid to show a baby project, but make sure that the next one you put in your online portfolio is showing a progression and an advancement and just keep doing that. Love to hear from Vin on, on this as well. Uh, Russell makes an excellent point, um, soft skills as well. And I think along with soft skills, I mean, a little bit of ethics, I think might be helpful as, as well, um, you know, depending on the domain you're working on there. Uh, Vin, what do you think? So we're talking about transitioning from, sorry, I was answering a question in the chat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry about saying, that. He's saying Sounds to, like you're saving me. Yeah, no, it's a, to, what does it take to break into AI engineering from data science? So besides technical skills, what other skills are needed to survive? I don't know if this is a technical or, an, or not, but, and I think I talked about this last week too, but the whole concept of like a, what a cloud architecture does, cloud architect does, what a software architect does, what an enterprise architect does, in looking at a massive picture, that's really what you need to be able to understand is just this enormous problem that you're going to face because you're not coming into something that's brand new. You're coming into something that's 45 years old potentially all the way up to a brand new component. So you're going to be working with a lot of teams. You're going to be working with a lot of people who are in love with the technology that they've already adopted or that doesn't want to change. And so a lot of what you're hearing has like practical technical applications, but it's the application of some of these more soft skills to talk to people in other groups who are also technical and to try to get them to understand where the business as a whole is going. And so that would be the only thing I'd add. There's kind of this, I don't know what to call it, but there's this fuzzy skill that I see, you know, infrastructure architects or enterprise architects and, and cloud architects have where they can get a whole bunch of people who are all technical, who all speak different technical languages and all have different backgrounds together and to agree and come to a consensus on moving forward with something that's painful for all of them. It's interesting. Maybe that skill is called architecture, right? That's, yeah, that could be the, the name of that skill. That's, that's, uh, Interesting observation. Uh, Knickerbocker, I'd love to hear from you on this since you're, you're definitely uh, into AI research and an engineer as well. So the question he's asking is, what skills does it take to survive in AI engineering? Okay, sorry. Uh, I, I was actually troubleshooting the ML flow and cube flow issue at, the, at that time. He was um, AI engineering right there on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I hate it when I have a bug right in front of me. Um, I really don't like being called an AI engineer um, or anything AI, I still just haven't gotten used to it. Even data science feels weird to me. Um, I'm always just a software person forever. I just really got hooked into data science 
and ML, and I've been doing data my whole life. Um, but on my current team, I work for the AI research group at McAfee. Um, and so I am an AI engineer, I guess now. Um, but the skills that I use most or the skills that really help me out a lot um, is a lot of it is my operations background. I was a data operations engineer at McAfee before that. And so I'm used to dissecting servers. Um, I know how to get to the, the root of problems very quickly. I know how to map out data flows from the point of coming into a company to the product itself. And so being able to dig into data and go from the beginning to the end and understand operations and know your way around Linux and understand DevOps. Um, and like, there's so much software involved. There's so much operations involved. Like this is just a marriage between so many different fields. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love it so much, but it's also one of the reasons why it's so exhausting is just that there's so many things to balance um, and there's no, holy cow, there's just so much to learn. I've got piles of books all over the floor, like you guys probably do as well. And um, shoot, I think it's just, uh, you got to have a technical background, but you have to have a, a hunger and obsession for this kind of stuff. Um, otherwise, I don't think you'll you'll ever float. <laughs> you know, yeah. You'll just get to the bottom real quick because oh, it's overwhelming. I yeah. absolutely love that, man. That's really, really true. An insatiable hunger to learn and to want to feel uncomfortable all the time because you feel like you don't know enough. Yeah. I, I don't feel like people, people often talk about their comfort zone and I don't even think I have a comfort zone anymore. I don't think I have a place where I'm not in known territory. Like yeah. I get thrown at the problems that nobody's figured out yet. And that's exhausting every single day. And I think other people are probably like me in this field. So. And this touches on what Russell is talking about in the chat here. He's saying tenacity and resilience. I think this is very much in line with what you are talking about. It's it's hundred um, percent. Like you just described what tenacity and resilience is like in the, in, in this field. So thanks for sharing that. Um, also Kimberly says negotiation is a good skill as well, which I hundred percent agree with. So let's go ahead and move on to, um, so the, well, Kristen, your question is up next. If, if you want to ask it, go for it. I, uh, I don't know if you're still here. Oh, sure. Um, my question okay. is um, just, so I was in an interview this morning with um, a high level um, data science team, and he was talking all about um, Alteryx and they're moving their whole pipeline into Alteryx. And I know um, Google has a plugin play um, ML pipeline as well. Um, and so I was just curious what y'all have seen in the trend moving like away from a traditional um, code heavy uh, ML pipeline and into these more uh, low code, no code, um, you know, products. I feel like this would be a great question. Who's that guy that runs the uh, hashtag breaking into data science hashtag? That guy's always co-hashtagging all that's your green well. yes that's his name yeah yeah um but yeah I'd, I'd love to hear anyone's take on this i'm not too familiar with the low code no code kind of environment um I'm sure. yeah i can take this um yeah i've used altrix quite a bit i i like that you can automate everything and it takes away the programming part and just lets you focus on the business logic uh but can i ask like what's the end goal are you trying to like create a workflow that's transforming the data and then feeding into a dashboard or like what's the end goal of the, of the use of Altrix? Yeah, that was the end goal was to create a continuously updating um, dashboard for okay. the stakeholder. 
Yeah, I've done something similar. And um, if your questions around like, is it better to do that or not? I think um, if you're streamlining a process and making it easier to train like anybody new who's onboarding and taking ownership of that, it's easy because um, Altrex is like a flowchart. You have different tools that can read multiple Excel files or create new columns or transpose your data. And then you can also have connectors that feed a dashboard in Tableau or Power BI and just kind of have an end-to-end connection so you don't have to manually write scripts for anything. Just hit the execute flow and it picks up the data from the folders and passes it through the pipelines and throws it into a dashboard. Uh, So if that's what you're trying to do and leave from the programming side of things and move towards a more automated solution, I think Altrix is great. It will have some learning curve because you, you need to understand which tool is doing the right business flow for you. Uh, but there's enough documentation online that you can leverage for that. I think Altrix is great for that. And they've also uh, paired up with Snowflake now, I think. So it's even easier to have like a production level connection with the workflow. Right on, there you go. Hopefully that answered your questions. Um, Altrix, if anybody's listening, you can send a check for the advertisement to me whenever you get a chance. Curtis, this one's for you. Hi everyone. Um, it's actually a bit of a shame that Joe's left the chat because um something just popped up on my LinkedIn feed for something he said a couple of hours ago. But my question is more about um for the more uh, senior data scientists in the chat that do a lot of hiring, how would you like to be approached by a cold contact, like um whether it's by via email or via LinkedIn or whatnot? How would you like someone to come to you and what would you like to see from someone? who was approaching you cold and looking for work. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a good one. I love to hear. I know, I know a lot of us here get these messages quite often. I I probably get 15 to 20 messages a day from people and all they're telling me is that they need a job. And so Mm -hmm. dude, like I really, I can't really help you. Um, How about try being my friend first and getting to know me and building a relationship before just like, I mean, I'm not going to call this person out, but literally this person was like, hello, sir. Hello, sir. Like for many days in a row. And then I was finally, I was like, hello, madam. And she was like, how can I contact you? And I was like, uh, you can't that. No, she's like, I want to be a data scientist. Please tell me how. And I'm like, uh, I wish I could tell you like in one sentence, but it's not that easy. Um, that's definitely the wrong way to do it. But I think if somebody's reaching out to me cold, there's somebody here that was joining earlier. I think she bounced off already, but her name was, um, Dia. Dia, are you still here? I think she is. Dia, if you're here, please meet yourself. She did it the right way. The way she reached out to me was um, really, really cool because um, on two accounts, because first of all, she was like, I've got a bunch of questions ready. Um, You know, I know time is valuable. I know your time is precious. This is literally what Dia said. She said, "Um, I'm just seeking mentorship and, and, you know, for transition into data science, I'd be so grateful if we can connect. Time is valuable. So thank you in advance. I've prepared some questions and I hope I can make it worth your while cool. That's professional as hell. Not only that, I gave her my standard response. And this is the same response I give to everybody that reaches out to me for mentorships. Thanks for reaching out. Happy to connect. I'll change, I'll exchange time, my time, if you clean my podcast transcripts for me. And usually at that point, people just crickets, nobody responds. And she was like, yeah, definitely. I'm happy to help. Like I really want to help you. So kudos to you for doing that. Dia. Um, you did that right. Um, so reaching out to people and just like being like, look, I know your time is valuable. I've got questions prepared um, and make it worth your while kind of thing. I think that's that's key. I'd love to hear from anybody else. Tom, Vin, um, you know, anybody else as well. 
Hi, yeah, I just want to jump in because I'm still here. Yeah, um, oh, it's good. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, I didn't end up helping out because we had some technical issues, but I wanted to um, help out in any way because I understand, like, for everyone, um, we all have our own things going on. So it's like um, um, just like a kind gesture on your part. And I, this, like, um, office hour is way too advanced for me, but I'm just having it play here in the background and picking up on everyone's expertise and the vernacular that's being used. And so it's been really helpful. So yeah, I'll still take you up on the offer about like cleaning up the co podcast. So just let me know. And I'll definitely check um, out the podcast as well. Yeah, definitely. I'm trade trade my time for free for for that that's great uh vin or tom what do you guys think how's the right way to reach out to people when it's just flat out cold reach out yeah i i do get this a lot like uh oh i really want to work with you and i want an internship and i just very politely say i have no power to create positions or to hire anyone but uh if you apply at my company i'll I'll look at your portfolio online, and if it looks good, I would have no problems encouraging people to take a strong look at you. That way, I at least get a chance to encourage them to build their own portfolio to help them stand out. Ben? Sorry, I just went blurry there. Um, <laughs> you know, quality webcam, good thing to invest in. Um, so cold outreach is always going to be a hard thing. The best thing I can tell you about cold outreach is do it six months before you need to do it. And that's almost impossible to do because the only time you think about building your network is when you need your network. So spend some time, you know, once a week, at least once a month, spend a bit of time reaching out to people, but do it in a personalized way. Like have a good reason to reach out to somebody. It's almost, you know, I compare social media to like being at a, at a restaurant you know, if I'm sitting at a table and having dinner, would you come over and say, give me a job? That's the wrong way to reach out to somebody. If it, if it wouldn't work at a restaurant, don't do it on social media. But if somebody came up to me and said, hey, I've been following you forever. I mean, I've been following you for two years. This last post, like I just got this on LinkedIn. This last post that you did was kind of, you know, like it, it, it meant something to me. I, I want to connect. You know, can I connect with you? Can I follow you? What do, what do I do to connect with you? And that's like, that's your number one conversation starter. Yeah, it'd be strange for that to happen at a restaurant, but you get what I'm saying. It would be far less abrupt or awkward than, you know, somebody just come up and say, hey, give me a job. And I know that sucks because it feels like, you know, you want something now, you need something right now. And it's hard to do the, the longer road in, but you're going to get more responses. At the same time, like if you're urgently looking for a job, it's okay to just reach out to people and say, hey, I just got, and tell them the real story. Like, I just got laid off. I need, I need help, you know, or, I, you know, I just graduated from college. The internship I had lined up evaporated. I need help. I need, you know, I, I, this is kind of urgent. Sorry, I reached out cold. But when you're authentic and you're honest like that, even a cold outreach, you're going to get somebody who's going to look at it and go, oh, uh, hold on. Let me see what I can do. Because all of us want to help somebody that's found themselves in a rough time. And so you're going to get a lot. Of, like if you need something urgently and there's a legitimate reason for it, cold outreach with like zero prep is okay. Yeah, absolutely love that. Great advice. Another thing you can you can do as well, um, you know, if there are companies in your local area, your municipality that you find interesting that you think that you want to go work for, like Vin said, network and connect before you have to. So 
take a look at their website, read their blogs, connect with people inside the company. Be like, dude, I read this blog on your company website that had to do with innovation, AI, machine learning, data science, whatever. I thought it was really fascinating that you guys are doing X, Y, Z. I'd love to learn more about it. Um, would you Would you like to connect and then take it from there, right? And then come up with like two, three max really insightful questions about what you read um, and just to show interest. And I think that goes a long way. So Curtis, hopefully that was helpful. Um, all right, y'all. So that's going to be the last question for today. Thank you so much for hanging out. A couple of huge announcements. So um, next week I will be on the super data science podcast. I'm recording with uh, John Crone um, next week. So I don't know when that episode will be released, but that's pretty huge. It's like the first data science podcast. Anybody has invited me on. So we'll see if you guys have, care about what I have to say. So that's gonna be cool. Uh, not only that, um, just announced that, well, I don't know if it's been announced, but Finn and I were both outreached to uh, to be on a panel discussion for the Data Science Go virtual conference in April. So I'll be moderating a panel discussion for that, which should be awesome. Um, really looking forward to that. I know Tom's going to like this. Uh, also in March, I will be interviewing Andrew Hunt, who is the co-author of The Pragmatic Programmer. So I'm really looking forward to that. A couple other big interviews happening as well. Um, so looking forward to uh, to a lot of cool things happening. Um, I'm like I'm literally from from now until the end of April. I've got like t- twenty interviews scheduled, and uh, then I'm taking a hard break from interviewing for the rest of the year because by that point I'll have interviews queued up until literally the end of the year. So looking forward to that. Um, so you guys take care. See you next week. If you guys did not already do so go register for comet ml open office hours uh, which happened on sunday morning 11 30 a.m i hope to see you guys there and that's pretty much all we got guys Uh, take care have a good rest of the weekend remember you got one life on this planet why not try to do something big cheers everyone peace y'all